0: Global
1: Capital Podcasts.
0: Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the editor of Global Capital.
1: And I'm John Hay, corporate finance and sustainability editor.
0: And each week we bring you some of the most interesting stories from the uh, capital markets and now one story that's particularly caught our attention this week is the revival of the solomon brothers back brand that's a story that we'll be talking to our people and markets editor richard metcalf in more detail about later Um, most people in the markets today and possibly beyond will only really know solomon brothers from the industry bible liars poker by michael lewis the book that he wrote to dissuade people from uh, joining the securities industry um but has in fact become a how-to guide for for any any aspiring banker wanting to make his name solomon brothers was a legendary 80s and 90s firm and it was gobbled up by first travelers group and then city uh in 1998 the brand disappeared in 2003 but like a lot of these sort of legendary names of the financial markets it's lingered on isn't it john
1: well, um, it, it, it's lingered on in memory, and now um, uh, some very little known people have, have re- revived it and are starting a new investment bank with the name. And Richard's uh, looked into it in some detail and, and, and at some, of, some of the background to the people involved, and also their plans potentially to, to bring back other uh, sort of redundant uh, trademarks. Um, so, so it's quite an interesting story.
0: Yeah, we'll have much more on that later. Um, In the meantime, uh, something else that, uh, well, I suppose there is only sort of one big grand story in capital markets at the moment, and that's what central banks are doing, and particularly what they did last Thursday. Um, Now on the podcast last week, we spoke a great length about what the ECB had done and what that meant for uh, bond issuers. Um, But this week, um, you know, the markets are still going to have been adapting to, to those policy announcements and in particular John uh, you've you've concentrated on something the bank of england said last week and its effect on the corporate bond market can you um tell us a bit about what the bank said and how the market reacted
1: yes well the bank of england's monetary policy announcement last thursday was was obviously very important for the economy as a whole they put up interest rates uh to to half a percent and indicated more about the the future direction of tightening because inflation in in the UK is really quite high um, in the 7% range at the moment. But buried in the announcement was something that that a lot of people might not notice, which was the Bank of England said it would sell the 20 billion pounds of corporate bonds it owns. Now, um, this doesn't perhaps sound like the most earth shattering announcement. But if you work in the corporate bond market, it's pretty major. Twenty billion may not seem an enormous amount in the context of, um, you know, vast financial markets and quantitative easing and so on. But but the average issuance of of corporate bonds in in sterling every year is about thirty six billion pounds over the last ten years, and that's offset every year by about eighteen billion uh, being redeemed. So so the actual net issuance of corporate bonds is only about 18 billion now um so so another 20 billion being plopped into the market is is really quite a lot for investors to have to swallow
0: and that's um that's going to be particularly uh egregious in this market because i suppose unlike say the european corporate bond market or the u.s corporate bond market the sterling market as you say in volume is much smaller there are also many fewer borrowers too and there are obviously uk companies that are a much bigger portion of the market so presumably investors are worried that if they own particular companies that are uh that form quite a big part of the bank's portfolio when the bank comes to sell those chunks of bonds they're um they're they're in for a rough time
1: yeah i mean no one no one thinks this this isn't a crash okay or or or, or or a or a or a disaster but but what it but it's a new element that that is going to create a a sort of permanent seller in the market. And for the last umpteen years, uh, markets have got used to basically having uh, a permanent buyer in the central bank. Now, quantitative easing hasn't been going on uh, without without any breaks, um, but but it has. That there, there have been regular bouts of it, and you know, even between them, central banks were basically uh, easing, trying to ease monetary policy. So so the markets have always felt they had the central bank had their backs. Now that's changing. And, um, you know, having a sort of a permanent seller in the market for, for what could be 18 months or two years, constantly dripping bonds into the market um, is just likely to weigh on sentiment and sort of potentially just generally put a, a sort of gloomy face on the market.
0: I mean, has the bank given any sort of colour about how it's going to sell its 20 billion of corporate bonds?
1: No, they they. But what they have said is that they will decide within the next three months and publish a plan. Now, there's quite high confidence in the Bank of England handling it well. People generally respect the way it it, it operates, and and uh, they're they're fairly sure that it will try to minimise disruption and um, make it as smooth as possible. Um, what what most people expect is that they will do something like the reverse of what they did when they were buying the bonds. And this is to have a sort of reverse auction system. Where um they well, when they were buying the bonds, they would basically come into the market predictably on certain days of the week. And, and they would actually concentrate on a particular sector of, of the corporate world, such as utilities on a particular day and then say, uh, Today we're buying utilities. Show us the bonds you want to sell and the prices, and and um, we'll we'll buy what we choose. Um, so so the, the likelihood is that that will be sort of turned around, um, and you know something similar will be done to sell the bonds.
0: Hmm. I mean it's, it's interesting isn't it? because people were still sort of or have recently been fed up with the Bank of England, at least the way it communicates. Now I suppose investors are always grumbling about central bank communication mm. because central banks are talking about changing things and you know the private sector yeah. doesn't like the change um do you think there's uh, you know i guess the bank what the bank has done is it said that it, it's telegraphed that this is coming but it hasn't told you how it's going to do it mm. has the bank done this well or are investors moaning about nothing or how do yeah, you feel
1: about that? I, I think they have done it well, and, and actually I, d- I do think investors moan an enormous amount about about central banks. Uh, you know, they they uh, both, the, well, the Bank of England, European Central Bank, and, and Federal Reserve all are trying to gradually tighten monetary policy at the moment. I, in my view, they, they communicate very clearly about it. Uh, as clearly as really as possible, considering that the economy is always changing and they have to react to new conditions. Um, but still, whenever they do something that's sort of unfriendly for the bond market, people gripe and moan. Um, so, in this case, I think that, that they made, you know, everyone was taken by surprise and people have complained to the Bank of England about it, but I don't think they really have a leg to stand on. Um, and, you know, the, the bank will i'm sure fulfill what it said and and publish the methodology soon um i think what what what's difficult to know though because there are very few precedents for this is is how it will affect the market and you know you could you could imagine that perhaps this is something that can be just priced in straight away because the quantum is known we know how much the bank wants to sell we know the the period over which it will do it so it, it ought to be something that you can sort of price in but at the same time it it may not work like that and there may be this sense of a sort of constant drip drip of 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 selling that that kind of unsettles the market
0: yeah and i guess the other thing is i mean i don't know to some extent you just to wonder if this is a bit like worrying about a sort of slightly leaky roof when there's a tsunami headed for the for the house um (laughs) You know, twenty billion pounds of corporate bonds is a lot for the UK corporate market. But um, the bank owns eight hundred and seventy-five billion pounds worth of gilts, and it will unwind that at some point. Presumably, Uh, that will surely have a far bigger effect on the underlying market. Absolutely,
1: and and you know that that that's uh, that's absolutely right. And and I mean, not only that, of course, the actual supply of corporate bonds does go up and down quite a lot in 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 from year to year anyway just due to you know whether companies want to borrow whether it's attractive for them so it can vacillate between say 30 in the 30 billions and and the 50 area so investors you know have to cope with that anyway but but on guilt absolutely um the thing that will really drive yields in the sterling market and and also therefore spreads because they're likely to widen in sympathy with yields is is gilts, and here um, the bank has said that confirming roughly what it indicated in December, that it's going to let uh, the the, the guilt that matures in March, coming up of which it owns twenty eight billion pounds, is going to let that mature and not not reinvest the money in in other gilts. So what that means is the Bank of England's holdings of gilts are suddenly going to drop by twenty eight billion in one day um and you know if you if you think about quantitative easing in a sort of mechanical way that that's a big jump
0: and what about the future pace of monetary policy tightening, john beyond the 28 billion yeah well uh,
1: the the thing is it's very it's very uneven it will come in chunks because it just it's just when the bank when these bonds mature and and the ones you know how much the bank owns of them so for example there's another 3.2 billion pounds uh, maturing in July and then uh, I think about six billion in September then nothing more until July 2023 and then there are three in in 2023 it it goes up to 130 billion during the 2024-25 period but although these are large amounts in in themselves the the even more frightening prospect perhaps for the sterling market is what the bank has indicated it might do uh, if if it needs to tighten monetary policy even further and that is once interest rates get to one percent and they're at half a percent already, it will consider actively selling gilts into the market. And this p- perhaps could have the advantage of the the flow of uh, gilts back into the into private hands being smoother than this very uneven pace that, that I've talked about. But um, on the other hand, having an active seller of gilts could be something that um, the market finds very hard to adjust to.
0: Right, right. And I guess, you know, the big thing we've been talking about uh, this year so far is how the primary market, so where bond issuers looking to raise new debt, um, how they've been coping yeah. uh, with central bank decisions. Have there been any consequences so far in the UK corporate bond market? Well, result?
1: well, the interesting thing is um, actually – uh, you know, the market the market freaked out on Thursday last week when when it was announced and it was pretty bad uh, for a few days d- at the beginning of this week. But there have been two really good uh, new corporate bond issues uh, on one on Wednesday, and one on Thursday. Um, first by Associated British Foods, which which makes sugar and um, bread and and also owns Primark. Um, and they issued a very successful bond that that got good demand. And the following day, it was Seven Trent, the water company, um, which, which got an even bigger book of demand and ty- priced at a, an even tighter new issue premium. So it does show that perhaps you know investors, th- though they may have qualms about the likely effects on the market of all this, it's not going to stop them buying paper when 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 they when they see a good deal.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we've, we've seen um, a sort of, I guess, a slightly sort of puzzling picture across across uh, most of the main primary markets, haven't we, this week? Um, if we think about the uh, fig market, or what we call the fig market, so where, where banks go to raise debt in the bond market, that was quite an interesting um, case in point. There we found that uh, what are called national champions um which is uh, surely a surely a phrase that only banks could have thought of to describe themselves <laughs> yeah. but basically a big bank in each jurisdiction or each country um they seem to have a uh, good access to the markets albeit they have to pay a slightly pre- higher premium than before to do so but um sort of less well-rated credits are, are not really able to get the same sort of deals done at all are they
1: yeah there was a, a strong contrast this week at ing um from Holland, uh, issued five billion of paper in euros, uh, about three billion of um, holding company bonds, which are in a way slightly subordinated, and and then two billion of covered bonds, which are secured, um, and and you know there was there was massive demand. They they did really well, um, and there were other deals by banks like Swedbank, Danske Bank, Nordea, all sort of national champion types. But then um, a, a sort of a rural Spanish bank, Caja Rural de Navarra, a good capital markets borrower with a, with a very professional approach to the market and, and well-liked, it really struggled somewhat to issue a 500 million uh, green covered bond and got only 700 million of demand and most of that in the last, you know, towards the end of the sale.
0: So um, yeah. it, it, it's tough i mean that that um spanish trade it was a 7 year bond so not the longest maturity and like you said yeah. they added the green yeah. label so they kind of did everything they could i guess yeah. to uh, to appeal to investors um i think it just um, shows
1: that that the market is very it's very full of surprises at the moment and yeah. and you've got um it's very uneven um and 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 this is sort of what everybody has predicted right all year they said this is going to be a stop start year of volatility because of central banks basically turning up the dial on 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 interest rates but but when it actually comes to pass and and you're living through it it feels very uh jerky surprising baffling sometimes mm-hmm. um and you know these deals are, are achieving results that people didn't expect, both on the upside mm. and the downside.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, sticking with the, the bank issuance market, Deutsche Fanbrief Bank, so uh, mm. a German covered bond issuer, um, it chose to do dollars this week. Um, you would, you would mm-hmm. think this this is an issuer that yeah. could do something in euros whenever it yeah. wanted, but it thought dollars was better. Yeah. Uh, I spoke to um, a uh, senior uh, banker from the sovereign supernational agency bond market. and. Um, To your point, John, he said that uh, the market has become interesting again. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. You know, after years of uh, years of central bank support, it's it's just been easy to go with any deal in that market and know you can do it successfully. But they they seem to be having genuine conversations now uh, about whether you can do certain maturities or certain spreads or pay certain premiums or whatever it might be. So, um, certainly the banks are being asked to earn their money again when they're advising their borrower clients. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was. I thought it was so interesting. There was a a comment. Um, Mike Turner, our SSA journalist uh, covering the public sector bonds, uh, quoted a banker saying that the issuers in in that market were constantly calling uh, the, the the banks um, to ask how much can I raise, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, wanting to raise as much as possible. Now, these are the very best credits in the market, and, and but then afterwards, he he sort of caveat it by saying there's no panic at all
0: Hmm. yeah (laughs) yeah no no panic just sort of um
1: just constant calls to the desk uh, yes
0: exactly yeah 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 a heightened level of interested inquiry Um, yeah and in that market too you know we've, we've talked about um before in a market of rising rates and high inflation it's hard to do deals of long duration, yet Spain was able to do a mm. thirty-year uh, yeah. deal this week. It raised seven billion euros. Um, people are now talking about um, Belgium being the next to come next week, and the um, European Union, which is uh, has become this sort of bellwether issuer in that market. Um, it, interestingly, it, it did it did a short dated deal, um, and then a much bigger tap of a bond due twenty fifty one, but. People judged that tap of the long dated deal um, as a more sort of defensive ploy than bringing a new issue in a long in a long dated maturity. Right.
1: Yeah. No. That that's that's a funny sort of technicality in the bond market that that people would make a distinction between a new, completely new bond and and yeah. reopening an existing one to to just issue more notes. But yeah. but the but the the odd thing about that was, um, you know, the EU, as you say, is a sort of coming up behind Germany and France as a sort of benchmark issuer in, in the euro market. Um, but, but even an issuer like that, whose spreads ought to be very predictable and ought to be able to price bonds very finely, it, it issued the, the bond at, I think, twenty nine o basis points over mid-swaps, and it mm-hmm. tightened by six basis points uh, by the following day, which is which is a, a massive move. It suggests mm-hmm. that the market felt the deal was priced too generously. And, and investors piled in, thinking it would tighten, and and so you know uh, from one perspective, that cost the issuer a lot of money. You know the six mm-hmm. basis points on 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 you know some billions of debt for thirty years is is is, is, is material money. But um, what what it really shows is not, I think, that the deal was badly handled or, or judged, but just how. M- sort of uncertainly and quickly the markets are moving and people just feel different from one day to the next
0: yeah i think so i mean i think i think in the case of the eu as well um because it has become a borrower that prints such vast volumes of bonds um it's taken to sort of maybe not too conspicuously telegraphing but it it communicates its intentions well with the market, so as not Mm. to queer the pitch for other SSA borrowers, I guess, and investors. And I guess the downside of that approach is people know you're coming. Uh, And there was a piece by uh, Bill Mm. Thornhill, our covered bond editor this week, um, talking about the secondary market around the time that bond was, uh, that cap of the 2051s was being priced. And there was a sense that people were, you know, sort of covering shorts. They knew the bond was coming, so they knew they could buy it back. they're right. a better price than they sold it. Right. So um I think I think that might have been a particular deny of that issue. Yeah. Um yeah and then I thought um just just uh, just to round off the sort of roundup of the um primary markets, I think we should, you know, it's always interesting to look at um what's going on in the emerging markets because mm. very often, especially with dollar rates, that's where the pain shows up first of all. Um I think the notable this week was uh, Mexico's deal. This is an issue uh, it's usually one of those. It's, well, it is one of the the major um, emerging market sovereigns in the bond market. Um, it could only do an eight hundred million euro, eight year bond this week, um, and it had to pay a twenty five mm. basis point issue premium to do it. And I think mm. that sort of shows these slightly elevated levels of of stress as a result of the volatility in rates.
1: Yeah, eight hundred million is not not a huge deal for an issue a national issue of that of that standing Um, yeah I mean emerging markets I I think I think the mood is darker there I mean I I have to say the you know um, classically it's emerging markets that suffer worst when interest rates rise and especially dollar interest rates and you know um, I mean they're pretty used to it they're used to dealing with it they've seen it before but nevertheless um it's it's not a not an easy outlook for them. But 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 even there, um it, it's interesting that the it's perhaps less um, less about sort of day-to-day swift changes in sentiment there. But but I think investors are positioning very differently. And um yeah. you know, our, our article this week had showed very contrasting attitudes to the market by different fund managers.
0: Yeah, that's right some um some are of the of the feeling that they shouldn't wait you know uh they yeah. they shouldn't wait for things to deteriorate and get worse and that you just have to sort of well that you should take the elevated premiums now um you know they see it as a buying opportunity to buy things cheap um
1: yeah, yeah.
0: And, they, and you know these are big big portfolio managers in this market whereas like you say others take the view that you're kind of catching a falling knife and um you know, what might look cheap now will be even cheaper in the future is that if things get worse.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I thought there was there was an interesting comment from the head of emerging market corporate bonds at, at a large U.S. fund, who said uh, and it, it it points out it's not just it's not just about the math. It's also about the 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 personal time and attention and, mm. and sort of mental labor you've got to do, because he, he said, you know, fixed incomes under pressure. All I want to do is look after my portfolio. He's he's thinking about you know there's this big sell off coming. How am I going to position my portfolio to be ready for it? And he just doesn't have time to think about um, new issues, particularly at the moment. And mm. and it's the same. It, actually, that's rather like the sort of thing we've been hearing in the equity market, another high risk uh, high risk investment market where people are just sort of um, not very keen to look at new issues because they're just thinking, can I get my house in order?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it tells you, doesn't it, that they just don't think these things are coming cheap enough. Wow. Um, I, maybe maybe the right level of cheapness is unrealistic for these issuers to pay. Um, but yeah, evidently, if big, big portfolio managers don't think it's worth their time uh, for the premium that's being offered, then um, issuers will have a harder time still.
1: Yeah, and actually, on that, when the um, one one of the things that we're going to start to see, and that 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 was mentioned this week in in emerging markets, is that for some borrowers, when when they issue their new bonds, they're now going to be coming at at yields that are above what the what the average is that that the borrower has on all of its debt, and this is something that hasn't really happened. Uh, for years, because interest rates generally have been coming down, spreads have been mostly mostly tightening. So, and and even at times, sometimes when the market widened in spread, because yields had fallen, borrowers could still come to the market and and actually reduce their cost of debt. Now, when interest rates turn fundamentally and and more than a little, that's going to stop. And and it, with each new refinancing, borrowers are going to be. Sort of raising their average cost of debt and and that's a, a sort of pain that i think we're only just beginning to see
0: yeah yeah it's uh interesting times ahead that's for sure um well speaking of things that uh, haven't happened for years um as we mentioned earlier we spoke to richard metcalf this week about the revival of solomon brothers Hi Richard, thanks for joining us. Um, so, what's with Solomon Brothers making a comeback?
2: Well, basically, there was some uh, press release that, that came out at the beginning of um, of this week announcing the launch of a new full service investment bank under the old Solomon Brothers brand with the same old logo, um, and it's you know basically the brainchild of um, this uh, entrepreneur. Um, Adam Smith, who is relaunching the brand, um, and he's, um, you know, obviously not doing it alone. He's assembled um, a, a an advisory board of all f- former uh, Salomon Brothers bankers. I mean, he himself uh, did work briefly at Salomon Brothers, um, and he, but he's brought some big hitters in uh, a, as an advisory board. And the idea is that uh, you know it's going to be based in New York at the World Trade Center, um, um, and really reviving the brand, um, and uh, you know trying to make a big splash, basically.
1: And do you think they are going to make a big splash?
2: Well, I think they have made a bit of a splash. Um, it certainly caught the attention of uh, bankers who, who who I've been talking to this week. They were they were all pretty well aware of it. Um, uh, but I think um, it does. You know, it does. When you when when you when you start to scrutinise it a, a little bit, um, you do kind of start to wonder um, a little bit about about how how um, clearly thought through the the, the project has been. Um,
0: well, it's interesting, isn't it? The um, it, it Solomon Brothers was gobbled up by a travellers group and then city. Uh, in 1998, and City retired the brand in 2003. It was at that point it was um, Solomon Smith Barney. Um, you know, we talk. It has this Solomon Brothers alumni uh, on its advisory board, in this sort of renaissance. Um, but is City involved at all? Or is it is it anything to do with them? Are they
2: backing no. the project at all? Uh, they're 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 not they're not affiliated in any way. Um, so, so Citigroup is, is sort of, you know, in a sense, the successor in a, in a corporate legal sense to the original Salomon brothers through these acquisitions, uh, when, you know, travelers bought Salomon brothers and then Citigroup merged with travelers. Um, so, so the original legal entity is, is, is still somewhere, you know, in, within the the Citigroup and I, and I did wonder whether Citi might be um you know a bit annoyed perhaps that um that someone had just come along registered this trademark salomon brothers that they had allowed to lapse so they i don't think they have any legal right over the name anymore um but they basically you know resurrected it and i and so i asked obviously a spokesperson at citigroup to, to to see if they had a comment and to them you know, they're basically like it's ancient history. This, we we stopped using this brand twenty years, almost twenty years ago, and we're just you know we're just sitting now. So it's kind of you know nothing to do with us. Hmm. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, I do I do wonder that. I mean, that was their official response. I do wonder whether wonder whether behind the scenes uh, there's a little bit more consternation. I mean, I thought one of the things that was interesting about this new Salomon Brothers firm was that uh, on one of the pages of their website they list uh, lots of you know, big m um, and and capital markets deals that the old Solomon Brothers did as sort of part of their credentials. Um, and they do put a disclaimer on the page to say, you know, these are historical transactions that the, that the old Solomon Brothers did. Um, uh, but they kind of justify it by saying some of the bankers who were involved with us did, you know, were around at Solomon Brothers when those, when those deals take place, presumably referring to this advisory board.
1: So what kind of investment banking are they actually going to do? And have they got have have they got have they got a business?
2: Um, It was a little bit difficult to tell at the moment. I mean, I did speak to the to the founder, um, Adam Smith, um, and he stressed to me that it was at very early stages. Um, You know, what they've said is that they're going to, you know, they're going to be a full service investment bank uh, from day one. and they've, you know, they've got pages on their website referring to things like sales and trading, and asset management, and um, syndicate. Uh, so the, the the appearance is certainly of a of an investment bank. I mean, I did try to to look in a little bit to whether they actually had the uh, regulatory uh, requirements to 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 act as a broker dealer, um, and I wasn't really able to establish that they had done that. Um, although they, they insist that they're licensed to offer securities in New York State, um, so um, I'm certainly not aware of any business that they've that they've already done or any clients that they've got. Um, and but, they go, how um, are they going to operate then? Well, well, they, they, I mean, that remains to be seen. They, but they, they say that they're in talks with hundreds of um, Salomon Brothers alumni, some of whom. Um, you know they say are interested in, in, in participating in the in the project po- possibly even being clients of the new firm um, and they're also reaching out to boutique investment banks uh, that already exist um, to to see if they want to actually join and, and be a part of the project by by sort of joining what they're calling an alliance or a, a you know a partnership of practices um, It's
0: like a we work for boutique investment banks.
2: That analogy hadn't occurred to me, but I mean <laughs> kind of. Um or a franchise like McDonald's or something like that. Right.
0: Know? Yeah. I suppose if you're a, a small boutique and, you know, it's three guys in a room who eat what they kill, um, maybe having Solomon Brothers on your business card is uh I don't know, it's gonna it's gonna
2: help. I don't know. Um has, has anything like this happened before? Uh well, actually it's funny you should say that because it wasn't um it, it was more of a brokerage, but uh, but something very similar to this has happened before. About ten years ago, um, a, a, a famous old brokerage brand, E. F. Hutton, was revived by a former by t- two former E. F. Hutton employees, um, uh, and they sort of relaunched it. The the old name had gone defunct, and they'd registered a trademark, um, including for the um, very well known slogan of the of the original firm, which I think was something like ear lis- listens or something can't remember the exact wording <laughs> but but uh but yeah so that, so this has happened before and uh, uh, that pati- that attempt um ultimately didn't didn't i would say it didn't didn't really succeed um, um the, the company ended up being restructured in in 2019 um and that brand is now held. By a, actually a boutique investment bank um, that you, which could called... now turn out to be part of Solomon Brothers. <laughs> well, I think having, now having it's confusing in, it, Ralph. Having <laughs> invested in the EF Hutton name, I don't think they're going to change horses at this point. And they seem to be doing, you know, that that firm is at least doing some business. They they were the sole bookrunner on, um, on on this, the uh, special purpose acquisition vehicle of uh, Donald Trump's social media um, company, uh, Digital World Acquisitions corporation that was so so they they're still in yeah EF Hutton that particular in EF Hutton it's quite confusing because these trademarks just kind of seem to pass around from one company to another mm. um and it it almost seems to undermine the entire point of a trademark which is to establish you know um a history of trading under one name um
1: is there any connection between the EF Hutton um project and um and the Solomon one
2: Yes, there is. Um, I did a bit of digging in the uh, U.S. Patents and Trademarks Office website, um, and I found that before the Salomon Brothers trademark was um, was owned by the this entrepreneur um, Adam Smith, it had been registered um, just in twenty twenty by a company called Dominant Brands um, LLC, um, which is a which is a company based in in Queens uh, um, in New York City. And looking into it a little bit further, I, I was curious whether this company held any other trademarks, and it turns out that they did. Um, and one of them was EF Hutton, uh, or, or historically they they had owned the EF Hutton uh, trademark. Um, and it turned out to be a, a company who, whose principal was listed as um, Christopher Daniels, and Christopher Daniels was actually the one of the two employees that that resurrected the EF Hutton brand uh back in 2012 and he actually was the ceo and cfo well he was the ceo and um of, of uh of ef hutton america's uh, until you know when it was going through this restructuring in 2019. so it seems like he went on to then um you know resurrect the Solomon brothers trademark um application that, that he had lodged uh and then at some point it got transferred to um to adam smith
0: it sounds like a good way to polish a CV. Um, certainly, I, I think I might, you know, fuel inject my career by uh, resurrecting a storied uh, city or Wall Street name and naming myself CEO or president of it, and then doing that a few times. Um, well, perhaps
1: Euroweek, so uh, the former former name of well, Global Campbell.
0: indeed, indeed, revive <laughs> those glory days. Um, yeah, certainly the idea of only coming to work on a Thursday and writing a couple of stories once a week sounds sounds brilliant. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm up for that.
2: It, it, uh, that's not how well. It works. I mean, that's that, <laughs> that's that's. I mean, uh, the thing is, you can bring the name back, but um, I I think most people acknowledge that you that in this day and age, you will not be able to bring back Solomon Brothers as it was. Yeah. Yeah. At, in their 80s.
0: Well, so well, I mean, you can't smoke on the trading floor for one thing. Um, so that's <laughs> out. Um, but but who's next? Uh, is, is Lehman Brothers coming back?
2: Well, uh, not Lehman. Well, it may be, but uh, I haven't found any evidence of that. What I have found is that uh, the this, this same dominant brands um, company based in Queens also has registered successfully uh, the trademark for First Boston, um, which is another prestigious name from the past. Um, used to be big, uh, be a big m and, and sort of leverage finance and, and buyout um, firm also in the 80s. Um, and so um, yeah, I actually managed to track down. They've actually got a placeholder website, um, firstboston.net, uh, where it just says coming soon. Um, so so I think that's probably got a good chance of being of being the next the next one to make a comeback. Lehman, you know, I mean there, there's there's clearly some residual value in these brands, you know, Mm. from a publicity point of view. Um, And yeah, maybe Lehman Brothers could be next after, you know, who knows?
0: And there's a lot more colour on what is already a very colourful story over on globalcapital.com, so be sure to go there to read more about the revival of Solomon Brothers. It only remains for me to thank John and Richard for joining me to record the podcast and to thank Gerald Hayes, our producer, for putting it all together. Uh, Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast for free. Um, There's a new episode out every Friday. Just look for Global Capital on any podcast provider uh, and you'll be able to hit the subscribe button there. Do get in touch too, email us at podcast at globalcapital.com. Uh, if there's anything you'd like us to cover that we haven't discussed already, or if you've got any feedback on what we have talked about, we'd love to hear from you. So it only remains for me to thank you for listening and to join urge you urge you to join us again next week for the latest Global Capital podcast. Thank you. Goodbye.